This audio is from South Fellowship Church. And what a great message. Lead us into light. Uh, today we're going to talk about something, a, a way of, uh, of shining light in all kinds of places, a shining light into the darkness. Um, and uh, I'm going to continue this series that uh, we have here. Oops, let me, let me get here set up. There we go. I'm going to continue this series of uh, Upside Down that Ryan started. This is the sixth in the series, and he's given me a, a great passage to work with. Love this passage, Luke chapter 15. If you turn to Luke chapter 15, we're going to look at uh, probably one of the more familiar parables, one of the more familiar stories in Scripture, and that's the story of the prodigal. The prodigal. Um, I want to just take some time to, to set the setting of this parable, and so we're going to jump right into the Scripture in uh, verses 1 and 2, and this is the group that Jesus is teaching this day. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. <laughs> yes. Um, and this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such despicable people, even eating with them. So, so we've got Jesus and we've got two groups of people. You know, you can almost see an aisle going right down between them. Uh, you've got these despicable sinners on one side, you've got these Pharisees on the other side, and I know your passage doesn't probably say despicable sinners. I'm using something today called the New Living Translation, which I, which I love. It kind of makes it come alive a little bit more. Um, but, you know, as I was looking at this challenge that Jesus is facing, I began to ask myself the question, okay, where do we see, uh, you know, some divisiveness between two groups of people, and they just can't seem to communicate. Um, they just can't, you put them in one room, and they just aren't able to communicate and talk. Um, I don't know, can anybody think of anything? Um, you know, I wasn't expecting such a great illustration to still be going on, but with this government shutdown that we're occurring here, I, I had to ask the question, wonder what would happen if Jesus walked into Washington? And what would happen if Jesus walked into the House of Representatives and walked that long aisle? What would happen if he walked into the Senate chambers, walked down there? Uh, you know, and I was thinking of this rather self-righteously, probably like a, a Pharisee, and uh, all of a sudden, it was almost like this voice came to me and said, Dan, I already walk down those aisles every day. Uh, I have people on both sides of that aisle who love me, that I have called according to my purpose, and I've placed them there, Dan, and they are trying to work together. Dan, did it ever occur to you to stop uh, bad-mouthing them and maybe start praying for them. Um, so, you know, I went to Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. Give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and for all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior. And listen to this. Uh, because he wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. You know what, as I read that, yeah, I'm just challenged. We did this first service, I want to do it now. Let's just pray. Let's just pray for our leaders. Father, I come to you right now, and first of all, Lord, you, you tell us to give thanks. So I thank you for the leaders that you've given us. I thank you for the country you've given us to live in. Lord, 
yeah, we just lift them up as they're in a quandary right now. Um, I pray that your love and your truth would spill from your chosen ones in those arenas. And Father, you would bring about just the openness for them to be able to dialogue and talk again. Thank you, Father. And Lord, as we look at this passage, I ask that you would make it come alive to us and you would show us your truths in this passage for us today. Thank you, Father. We love you. Thank you, God. In the name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen. You know, when it comes to to politics, we, we kind of expect to have varying viewpoints. In fact, that's how our politics work. Uh, of course, they have to have some diplomacy and they have to talk together for it to really work. But you know, when it comes to the church, we don't expect to see a divisiveness. In fact, we expect to see a unity and a oneness. When you look at this, notorious sinners and Pharisees, you know what? I would say notorious sinners and Pharisees, that's a good description of the church today. And we should never see one side calling the other side a name, even though up in these verses we hear despicable people, and I'm quite certain the other side was calling them some choice names as well. Um, But somehow coming together and realizing there's a wonderful unity that we have when we focus it on Christ. This passage, this story that we're going to look at today, I believe gives us some principles um, and and, and shows us some of the importance of of how we are supposed to live in a unity and a oneness. Um, I'm going to show you a verse here, John 13, because I think it just lays out for us why this is so important. Now I'm giving you a new commandment, Christ says, love each other just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Every Sunday, we should be an example of oneness and unity that the outside world should see, but not just on Sundays, every day of the week. That unity is going to be broadcast to the world, just like the song that Rob wrote. It's going to be a light in a dark place. But if we don't have that love one for another, that light isn't going to shine. So what's a principle that can help guide us that we're going to try to unpack this morning as we look at this uh, story of the parable? The principle is the key to loving one another is in learning to live as one who is well-loved. Learning to live as one who is well-loved. Um, I talked with one of you this week, and uh, we were talking about your job, and you, you work in a place, it's kind of gnarly. You've got some, some rough characters in this place, and you were saying, man, there's this one guy, he is just angry all the time, he's always kind of attacking other people with words. And then you said an interesting thing. You said, you know, I wonder if, uh, I wonder if he feels good about himself. And then you also added, and I wonder if he's ever really been loved. The key to loving one another is in learning to live as one who is well-loved. Let's jump into this story because, yeah, Jesus uh, takes this and he's going to illustrate this for us and and drive home some things. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons, um, and, and right there we stop, you know, because Look at the parallels going on here. A man had two sons. Here you've, got, uh, here you've got Jesus, and you've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on one side. You've got these despicable sinners on the other side. You've got like a group of three here. And so Jesus is drawing a parallel. A man had two sons. Um, and we know this is the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal. Um, here's the definition of the prodigal. Spending resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant, lavish, luxuriant. 
wastefully extravagant. I like that phrase. Um, and, and we know that as we get into this story, we see the, we see the prodigal. Uh, let me go on. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now instead of waiting until you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land. And as you're looking at your verses in front of you, your Bibles, you may not see that little phrase, instead of waiting until you die. But let me tell you, when he says, I want my share of the estate now, he's saying, I don't have time to wait until you die. Um, you know, maybe as a way to illustrate this, I, Carrie and I, over the last few years, we've said to go, goodbye to our parents. Uh, uh, out of our four parents, we have lost three. I say lost, they're waiting for us which I'm excited about. But my mom is still alive. My mom is 91. In about uh, two weeks, she's going to be 92. Ever since my dad died, I've called mom every Monday. And, you know, Carrie just laughs. She laughs at me because we'll be on the phone for an hour and a half just talking about the stupidest little stuff. Um, she's, she's become a, a football fan in her latter years. Actually, in the last three years, she became a National Football League fan. And uh, she's over in New York State, so she roots for the Buffalo Bills. I'm sorry. But um, we get together on Mondays, and we talk about that. Now, I look at this statement, and I wonder, I would never go to mom and say, Mom, I want half of what my inheritance is going to be, and I, and I need it now. She would probably do it. But the reasons I wouldn't want to do that, one is, I don't know how long she's going to live, and I'm going to take care of my mom. And the way she's doing now, she might live a long time. Um, so, so I want to make sure she has enough resources to take care of her. But two, I've got a brother. I have a brother, his name is Bob, and <clears throat> he's back there in New York State. Hey, if I took half of our inheritance right now, that cuts everything, and half the investments don't quite make as much. I'd be taken away from my brother, just like I'd be taken away from my mom. Um, so that's why when you look at this statement, he's just basically slapping his father in the face. And when I was reading some commentators about this, uh, a commentator said that in the Middle Eastern culture, the typical response to a request like this should have been a left-hand slap. Left hand because it's rejection. Slap because you're stupid. Um, instead, look at that. The father agreed. He agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And then you have this statement. A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land. And I'd just like to point out some quick things. Um, we know from this story that they owned a farm. Basically, you know, the, later on we see that the older son is coming back in from tending the... Uh, the, the, the flocks were taking care of the, of the land. So really the estate was land. It was real estate. And so when the dad divided this up, he basically took the farm and divided off the portion that belonged to this son eventually, and he gave it to him. This son, it says, a few days later, three or four days later, kind of the estimate, um, he packed all his belongings. You don't pack land in your suitcase. So in three or four days... This young son goes down into the town, auctions off his land, gets the best price he can get in three or four days, comes back, throws it in his suitcase, and goes off to a distant land. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for his brother to go to work the next day, to oversee the servants who are taking care of those fields, and to look at the next field 
and realize that that's no longer his. There's a new owner, there's new servants that are taking care of that. It no longer belongs to his father. It no longer belongs to him as the older brother. Can you imagine the feelings he's going to have toward this younger brother? And I wonder what the feelings are of the father. Yes, a typical father in this Middle Eastern culture would have been angry, would have been very upset, but this doesn't look like a typical Middle Eastern father because he agreed to divide the wealth. I have a feeling this Middle Eastern father had a heart that broke. And there's a third group that I never even thought of. Um, Last week, Ryan shared a little bit about an author named Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey was a missionary over in the Middle East. Uh, He learned the ways of the Middle Eastern customs. And he shared a very interesting insight. When this young man would take half of those resources from his inheritance and go away to a distant land, to a Gentile land, he was actually taking resources away from that Jewish community. And what Ken Bailey said, first century Jewish customs dictated that if a Jewish boy lost the family inheritance among the Gentiles and he dared to return home, well, then the community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out, so-and-so is cut off from his people. This ceremony was called the kazaza. Literally, it means the cutting off. And after it was performed, the community would have nothing to do with that wayward person. So when this young fella is leaving and he's got his money in his suitcase, he realizes he really can't return. What do we learn about love in a situation like that? Well, I would suggest to you the love of the Father gives the freedom even to reject his love. The love of this father who who agrees to take and divide the inheritance, even though he knows it is not the custom of that day, even though he realizes he could could castigate this young man. But he he extends himself and realizes that his love is being rejected in that process. Um, I was trying to figure out, how do you you illustrate this a little bit? You know, I, I read a story about new tribes' missions. And, and I love to deal with missions and other cultures. And in, in this uh, mission story, they were talking about a group of missionaries that had gone to an African culture, and they were attempting to translate the scriptures for this African culture. And over a period of time, they discovered that every verb in this African dialect or African language ended up with one of three vowels. Uh, it either ended in an I, in an A, or in a U. And every verb... Uh, went according to that pattern, and it gave a different meaning to those words, except for one word that they discovered, and that was the word that meant love. And in that word, uh, it only had two vowels that it would end in. It never ended with the vowel of you. And, And this missionary who was translating was puzzled by this, so he called his translators together, he called his team together, he called uh, the uh, tribal leaders together, and he asked them this question. He said, I've got to discover, because this is a big concept in Scripture. Why does the word love never end in you? So, so let me ask you these questions. Love, and we'll, say, we'll just say it's L-O-V. Uh, he, he goes to them, he said, could you L-O-V-I your wife? And the, the folks that came in, the, the tribal leaders, and said, well, of course, yes, yes, they answered. Uh, that would mean that the wife has been loved, but the love is gone. So it's like a broken love. So he said, okay, could you L-O-V-A your wife? 
And they said, well, yes, yeah. And that kind of love depends on the wife's actions. She would be loved as long as she remained faithful and took good care of her husband. So as long as she does everything that a wife's expected to do, that love would remain. So then he, he came to the big question. Okay, what I've never seen is L-O-V-U. Can you L-O-V-U your wife? And he wasn't prepared for the response because laughter just filled the room. And once they got control of themselves, they said, well, of course not. You can't L-O-V-U your wife. If you said that, you'd have to keep loving your wife no matter what she did. Even if she never got your water, if she never made you meals, even if she committed adultery, you would have to just keep on loving her. No, no. We would never say L-O-V-U. It just doesn't exist. And the missionary is sitting there saying, wow, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, so he said, okay, I'll ask it a different way. Do you think God could L-O-V-U the people? And there was silence as they thought about this. Isn't it amazing to realize, here's a culture that doesn't even have a word to explain the love that God gives. Eventually, after a minute or so, some of the older gentlemen actually began to water up in, in their eyes, and they began to tear. And then they said, they said, do you know, do you know what that would mean? That would mean that God kept loving us over and over while all of that time, we just rejected his great love. He would be compelled to love us, even though we've sinned more than any people. The missionary noted that changing one simple vowel changed the meaning from I love you based on what you do and who you are to I love you based on who I am. I love you because of me, not because of you. And the love of the Father is based upon who he is, not upon what his sons do to him. The love of the Father gives the freedom even to reject him. So, so we go to the second scene of this story. The young man has left his father and his brother. He's gone to a distant land, and sure enough, there he wasted all his money on wild living. And about that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve, and he persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. And the boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, Wow, at home, even the hired men have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'm going to go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired man. And so he returned home to his father. So we jump in here and we see two kind of movements here. One, yeah, he wasted the money. And then you throw in a famine and all of a sudden this guy's in deep trouble. So he comes up with plan number one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to indenture myself to a farmer and I'm going to work this off. Well, he does that, but guess what? No one gives him anything to help him. And yes, he's working, but he's starving at the same time. So, eventually, he comes to plan number two. When he finally came to his senses, when he finally woke up to his situation, when he was finally desperate enough, he said, you know what? Boy, at least I would have food if I went home. Now, I just want to point out, some people have thought that that term, when he finally came to his senses, means... He repented. But I would point out to you, this boy's heart is still the same. 
Yes, he's desperate. Yes, he's starving. But you know what? He's coming up with plan number B. He's saying, yeah, I've, I've really blown any kind of rights I have to sonship. And I have burned any bridges I have with my brother. And you know what? Who knows what the community is going to do to me when I go back. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask to be hired on as a hired man. And I'm going to earn my way back. And I'm going to go back and prove that I can do this. And so it says, so he returned home to his father. And I would just point out, again, in this Middle Eastern culture, what, what most people in the Middle East would expect to have happen is that when this boy returned to his town... And yes, and he faced the ridicule of his town, but someone would have to be a go-between between him and his father to try to mend the broken relationship. And there was a commentator who was, who was asking, well, who should that person be? He read this parable to them. He asked them the question, who should be the go-between? And they all said, well, the older brother. Because he knows the father and he knows the younger son. He should be the go-between. We don't really see the older brother anywhere. What we see instead, while this young man was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. He embraced him. He kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. And you know what? He didn't quite get that last little bit out about being a hired man. Because I believe his father interrupted him. And his father says, Oh, Uh, He said to the servant, quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and was now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Let's look at this love of the father in this scene. Um, The father saw him coming and he was filled with love and compassion and he ran to his son. Now, I picture this is happening here. Here he's sitting in his house. He's looking out the window in the distance, and way over the hills, he sees a figure coming up over that hill, and he realizes, that's my son. And, and he grabs his robes, and he hikes them up, and he starts running. And this is an old guy. And he's running and running, and he runs by his fields. And the servants are in the fields, and they're looking and say, oh, man, what, what's happening? We better go after him. And so they follow him, and he runs by the town, and the townspeople see him run, and they're saying, what's the matter with him? Let's go see. And they start following. And so you've got this entourage that's following, and he comes to his son, and his son is probably standing there saying, oh, no. And he comes to his son, and he embraces him, and his son is dirty, and his son is filthy, and his son stinks. And this man who is a wealthy man, embraces him and pulls him to him and he hugs him and he kisses him and, it, and it's not just one little kiss. Um, the, the word that's used here is he showered him with kisses. He showers him with kisses. Uh, and this father, not only does that, he says, bring the finest robe from the house. And I want to ask you the question, who's got the finest robe? Yeah, The father. And the father says to his servants, go back, go into my closet, get that robe that I only wear on special occasions and bring it back. And I want you to cover my son. Yeah, he's dirty, he's filthy. Put my robe on him. And he says, get get a ring and put it on his finger. Get sandals and put them on his feet. These sandals, you know, it's a sign of a freed man. Slaves walked barefoot. His son is walking barefoot as he comes. Get sandals and put them on his feet. Get a ring and put it on his finger. And the, the word that's used for ring there means signet ring. 
And, and when I say signet ring, that's a ring that has kind of the sign of the estate on it. And when they would do business, they would take that ring and they would press it into the wax. They would press it on so it showed the authority of that estate. And here's the father who's giving him authority back. Here's the father who's declaring him a free man. Here's the father who's covering him, covering him with his robes. And here's the father who says, kill the calf that we've been fattening, just waiting for a celebration to come. And then the party began. I love that. Um, here's the father who runs to his son in front of the town, in front of his servants. And I believe in doing that, just in that action, he kind of severs off that possibility of them performing this ceremony to cut off that young man. He takes it upon himself to extend himself to this young man and say, no, he's my son, and I want you to know that, and he is back. He was lost, but now he's found. This love of the Father extends itself. I would say the love of the Father restores the relationship even while it humbles and costs him. What an amazing love that's being shown here. And to all those people who are sitting there listening to Jesus, processing this in their mind, this does not fit with their culture. This is a unique kind of love. Well, we come to the third scene. And you know what the third scene in is. The, the, the party began. And for this party, you know, just like Ryan was preaching last week, uh, here was this banquet in that passage Ryan looked at. Well, here's a party in this passage, and he's invited the whole town to come and rejoice. And at this party, here's this son sitting here in these robes of his father. Here he is sitting, and by this time, hopefully cleaned up. Here they are, they're having a ball. Um, Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. I just have to kind of stop there, just as an aside. Um, I hear music. I'm not sure that I hear dancing. But that's, that's probably because I'm a Baptist. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, here he comes, and this party is wound up so well that he can hear the dancing that's going on inside. He can hear the music. He can hear the people laughing. They're having a great time. And he says to his servant, what is going on? And the servant says back to him, your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the calf that we were fattening and has prepared a great feast, and we are celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry, and he would not go in. And his father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've worked hard for you and never once have I refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the finest calf we have. Is it any wonder why the older brother is angry? I mean, just as we said, he's out there working away in these fields. He's looking across and he's realizing that that farm has been cutting a third or cutting a half. He's trying to make this, the ends come together as he wants to take care of his father, as he wants to prepare for his future too. And now the kid that spent it all comes back. And this, this older brother is, is angry. And you can just see this party where they're having such a great time, and all of a sudden a servant comes walking in and comes up to the dad and whispers something. And the dad's face kind of sinks. 
And he gets up and walks out. And everybody in the party quiets down. I can just hear the music silencing. I can hear the dancing stopping. And I can hear the whispers start going. And they all kind of follow the father out. And they see the angry older brother. And they realize, wow. Here's this older brother who's making his father come out and do this. And the father goes and pleads with his older son. But the older son says, I've worked hard for you. I have stuck with you. I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've earned everything I have. And you do something like this. You never even gave me a goat. Hmm. Here's what the father says to him. Look, dear son, you and I are very close. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and now he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And you see this tension. Here's the younger brother dressed in the robes of his father. Here's this older brother coming back tired and busy. Here's the father in between them and here's the town watching. And the next thing that happens is that the chapter ends. The story's over. I always wanted to know, come on, Jesus, what's the ending? And yet, isn't that the way Jesus tells stories? He leaves us in the tension of asking those questions of, of why, of what, of who am I in this whole scenario? And, and as we think about this younger and this older brother, you know, they seem like they're polar opposites. And definitely they seem like they will never talk together. And yet when we drill down to the heart in each one, we begin to realize that their hearts are very similar. The younger one is going to come back and he wants to be hired on so he can earn his way back into the graces of the family. The older one is working hard out there in the field so he can earn that inheritance. And the father stands there with love for both of his sons. And he says to his older son, everything I have is yours. Hey, you don't have to work for it. It's yours already. Hmm. The love of the father desires a family responding to love rather than mere workers responding to commands. The love of the father, you know, it gives a freedom that allows that love to be rejected. The love of the Father extends restoration, even at the expense of his own self. The love of the Father wants us to be able to respond in love rather than out of duty, rather than out of earning. There's a great verse in Romans chapter 4. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they've earned. But people are accounted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their trust in God who forgives sinners. Let me read it in the message. If you're a hard worker and you do a good job, you deserve your pay. Yeah, we don't call your wages a gift. But if you see that the job is too big for you, that it's something only God can do, and you trust Him to do it, in other words, you could never do it for yourself, no matter how hard, no matter how long you worked, well, that trusting Him to do it is what gets you set right with God, by God. It's a sheer gift. 
The love of the Father is a sheer gift. It's nothing that we can earn. Yes, we can reject it. And the vast majority of people in this world have. I'm left with this question as I look at this group of tax collectors and, and, and teachers of the law and as I look at these, these notorious sinners. I'm sorry, tax collectors and notorious sinners in this group of Pharisees. And I have to ask myself the question, in which group am I? And you know what? I'm in both. I'm in both. And the darndest thing is, I keep trying to earn my way back into God's grace. I keep trying to prove myself to God instead of realizing His amazing love that covers me. And His amazing love that covers each and every one of you. So I go back to John 13. Now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I've loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How do we go out and live light into a dark world? One of those ways is is loving each other. And the way we love each other is realizing it starts by receiving the love that the Father pours out on us. Um, One of the things I love about being on staff here And I've been here for, what, 15 years? 15, 16 years, something like that. Uh, People ask me, hey, how do you you characterize the staff now? And I say, well, the median age has dropped precipitously. (laughs) It's terrific having Ryan. And Ryan, I just, I love the way you bring the gospels every week. It is terrific having Nate. Uh, Nate just has a passion for God and he likes figures. Um, It's terrific having Chris just pouring into our youth. It's great having Aaron on board. Aaron, who brings such a depth of worship to us. This past week, uh, Aaron and I were about the only ones in the office one day, and uh, we were talking, and, and he was getting ready to present something to the, to the summit group. And he said, Dan, I just want to show him that every passage of Scripture presents the gospel, presents the light of the gospel in some way, shape, or form, and we're supposed to take and find the gospel in that passage, and then we're supposed to see, so what are the implications of the gospel being there in our own lives? I'm going to take you to 1 John 4. We were talking about this. God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. That's real love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Where do we see the gospel in those verses? Well, in a variety of places, but I'm going to highlight this one. He loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. He loved us so much that he said, come to me and let me put on a new robe called righteousness on you. Let me me put some shoes on your feet to signify that you are free. You are freed from sin. You are cleansed. Let me put a ring on your finger to show that you have an authority in my kingdom. Let me shower my love on you by sending my son. Wouldn't it have been nice if the older brother in that story had taken his responsibility to be the go-between? But in the real story, God himself in that whole mystery of the Trinity comes running into our world as Jesus Christ the Son. And he sacrifices himself at great cost, great humility, so that he can embrace us as his children, as his family. And he can say, 
stop working so hard. Receive my love. Takes me back to the definition of prodigal. Spending resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant, lavish, luxuriant. Yes, this is the parable of the prodigal. But I would tell you, the prodigal is the father. The prodigal is the one who's showing this lavish, extravagant love at his own humility, recklessly, almost wastefully. He showers us with his love. And he calls us to come under his arm. And in this passage, what's the outcome? Since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. We surely ought to love each other as we live as individuals who are well loved. Can we trust that today? Let's pray. Mm. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, visit southfellowship.org.